All right, welcome to uh, Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot, I'm the pastor here. If you're visiting with us or new-ish uh, to us, we would love to get to know you. We would love to be known by you. Um, and so there's some ways to do that. There's some visitor cards in the back. Um, there is uh, some visitor cards up, up top in the coffee room. Um, really, we'd love to shrink this room for you, help you get to know our small groups, some of the events we do, uh, and really um, for us just to be able to care for you. So please uh, introduce yourself to me or Matt or Daryl or Joseph, somebody you see that doesn't look crazy. Uh, we would love to talk to you. Lisa Harrison was here. Maybe she left. I don't know. But talk to somebody. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Um, we are nearing the finish of our spring sermon series that we were calling, uh, still are calling, Be Curious. Uh, we're, we're taking a curious approach to this person of Jesus, this mysterious figure. Um, and we want to get to know the real Jesus as he is presented to us in Scripture that what we can tend to do, what is normal for us to do, what is natural for us to do in so many areas of our life is to prejudge something, books and covers and you know, food and restaurants. Like We tend to uh, decide about something before we have an actual encounter with the real thing, and we're just inviting ourselves, we're inviting you to not do that with Jesus. That this semester what we've been looking at is real encounters with the real Jesus and would you not prejudge the Jesus you think you know, the Jesus that your parents knew, the Jesus that you have ideas about or even culture has ideas about? Would you get to know the real Jesus through his word which is the best revelation of him? And so we've been studying real interactions with him. How does Jesus handle the religious elite? How does Jesus handle children? How does Jesus handle the sick? How does Jesus deal with women? How does Jesus, how does Jesus deal with people? And what we've seen is, is that Jesus almost never says the same exact thing to different people. It doesn't mean that his statements to individuals aren't um, globally true. What it does mean is that Jesus is a physician of the moment. He's a master of being present with people. He knows exactly what is needed. Um, he knows exactly what he needs to say in order to not just pierce the heart, but to comfort the soul. And so we've been looking at Jesus' interactions and how does he do this and how is he constantly aware of all the dynamics that are going around and speaking and living and loving into those moments. So we're being curious together as we are encountering the real Jesus. A couple more weeks in this series uh, before we enter our summer series. Today's encounter is with a blind man on the side of the road, a man named Bartimaeus, Blind Bart, as he's lovingly known in some places. I don't know. Uh, we're gonna read just a very short account from Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles or your phones with you. Verse 46 says, and they came to Jericho. And as he, that's Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. 
And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So as a brief recap, just those six verses that we just read together, this story takes place uh, near the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. Right after this story, like the very next verse, Jesus will begin his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, like what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Jesus is entering the final week of his earthly life, and he is going to ride, get on a colt and ride into Jerusalem right after this story. And this will be the final passion week of his life, and he is going to suffer, to be betrayed, to be handed over, to be crucified, to be dead and buried and raised again. A lot's gonna happen in the next week. And the last story that Mark wants us to know about Jesus before that massive week is this story right here. They leave Jericho, which was a town several miles away, kind of to the northeast of Jerusalem, and there's what's known as the Jericho Road. It was, it was a long road, but well-traveled. Many travelers traveled from Jericho between a major city, Jericho, and Jerusalem. He's on the Jericho Road, heading up to Jerusalem. And they're stopped by this yelling blind beggar on the side of the road. And the disciples in the crowd are annoyed by Bartimaeus. What is this guy doing? You need to shut your mouth. We've got an agenda. We've got to get to Jerusalem. A lot's happening in Jerusalem. Our Jesus is going to Jerusalem to bring the kingdom. Man, we got to go. You need to shut your mouth, Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus won't do it. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He cries out even louder. Finally, Jesus stops the whole train of people, the whole crowd, because of this blind beggar. And he says, call that man to me. And so they go and get him. And this man springs up and runs to Jesus Jesus asks a very interesting question, which we'll look at. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus says, I want to recover my sight. I want to see. And Jesus does just that. And then this formerly blind man in the span of six verses goes from sitting on the side of the road as a beggar to then popping up and following Jesus. He's, now, he's gone from the margins to now being a part of the, of the team that is following Jesus in just six short verses. And he's following Jesus on his road to Jerusalem. That's the story, that's the miracle. So let's pray and go home. No, I'm kidding, I'll teach, don't worry. Um, and we have to kind of slow the pace down for a minute. We kind of have to pause here for a second because we would miss something that Mark, the author, is trying to do in these six short verses. Mark is known, the author of the Gospel of Mark, Mark is known for his kind of pithy, rapid-paced writing. He's kind of Ernest Hemingway-ish. He's kind of, doesn't use a whole lot of description, just very few words. It's the shortest gospel. He uses the word immediately, like a hundred times, because he's just moving from story to story to story to story until we get to the Passion Week and everything kind of slows down. But Mark doesn't really care about details. He leaves out details in certain stories that other gospel writers include and kind of paint a full picture of. So Mark rarely uses details. Mark rarely adds color to his sketches of Jesus and things move really fast through the book of Mark. And so when Mark then, as the writer, uses specific details that he otherwise leaves out in all of his other stories, the reader is invited to slow down and pay attention. What is Mark doing? Because he's doing something different than he ever does in all of his other stories. And so Mark, with like a grammar narrative tool, will draw the reader in to certain aspects of the story by adding things in that he almost never adds in. If Mark the writer is giving us additional de details, we should be paying attention. When Mark says something specific that stands out, that's unique, the reader should be paying attention because he never does this. 
And so two things happen, two very specific things happen in this passage that Mark is trying to use those details to like wave the flags, like the flashing sign on the side of the road, like, hey, 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 slow down. There's something you need to see here. Two things. First is, this is the only time in the book of Mark where the person who is encountered by Jesus, the person who's gonna receive the miracle from Jesus, it's the only time in the book of Mark that the person who receives the miracle is named. You can't name any other miracle recipient other than Bartimaeus in the book of Mark. So wait, 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 why is Bartimaeus naming this guy? Why would he tell us the name of this guy, not the name of any other guys? And then the other thing that happens in this little passage, these six verses, is this is the only time in the, in the book of Mark where someone refers to Jesus as the son of David. It's not the only time in the gospel accounts that that happens, but it's the only time in the book of Mark that someone refers to Jesus as the son of David. So two very specific details, the fact that we know the miracle recipient's name, Bartimaeus, and the fact that uh, Jesus is called son of David here and here only in the book of Mark. Two popping details, two very specific details in a book that is not known for its details. And we're not meant to necessarily run down the rabbit trail of those details like, who was Bartimaeus and what does his name mean? It means son of Timaeus. That's what, it's not, not a whole lot there. But what we're, what we're meant to do is this, is go, wait, 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 wait. Mark's doing something. Mark's trying to slow us down and go, hey, 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 hey. I'm using details so that you will pay attention to what's going on. Mark is saying, there's something here. Pay attention to this story. I'm including details in this story that I never include so that you will know to slow down and spend your time here. Mark wants to draw our attention into this miracle because there's something here that we need to lean into. Don't move immediately through this as Mark would have us do in many other aspects of his book. So what's he doing that for? Why is he slowing us down here? Well, let's slow down together and find out. Here's how it begins. Verse 47, we throw this up there. It says, and when he, that's Jesus, or Bartimaeus, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me on me, two times, Bartimaeus won't stop saying it. Why did Bartimaeus choose to use this title for Jesus? Lots of titles, dozens of titles that Jesus has in scripture, son of man, son of God, lamb of the world, light of the world, bread of life, all these titles that he could have used to call Jesus and get his attention. Why did, why did Bartimaeus roll through the Rolodex and pull this one out? We couldn't see a Rolodex, so no, I'm kidding. Well, he couldn't, but, but the, 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 the reason why <laughs> we, we need to slow down and pay attention for a minute and go, of all the names that he could have used to call Jesus, why did he choose this name? We need to know that this was a very loaded title for any first century Jew to use in reference to anybody, but namely Jesus. It's a very loaded title, it's a very loaded statement, and it's so loaded that many outsiders of the ancient Near East and of first century Judaism would miss. And I was trying to think of a phrase in the modern 
context in our modern day that is loaded, like it's loaded with cultural meaning, it's loaded with, um, with cultural weight, it's got so much behind it, it's got so much that we add to it that is maybe separate from actually the words themselves, that like in 2,000 years from now, if people read the history books and they came across a phrase, but they were on the outside of our culture, on the outside of our space and time, they wouldn't understand all that went with it, and so the only one I could think of, I'm sure there are better ones, but the only one I could think of is, is really politically charged and I'm not making any political comment with it. But when I say the phrase, make America great again, everybody in the room fills that sentence in with pictures and images and ideas and agendas and personalities. And that sentence has weight to it. It doesn't just mean those four words. It means so much more than that, right? Like it captures a whole era, it captures a whole uh, like tension, it captures whole agendas, it captures political movements and political conflict. And so if someone in a thousand years from Poland read that sentence, I don't know why I picked Poland, but somewhere not America read that sentence, they would go, well I know what those four words mean, make America great again. Okay, someone in that day wanted America to be great, you go, no, 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 no. It has so much behind it, it has so so much weight to it. it. It is implying a lot of things. And I'm not making political commentary. I'm just saying there is a weight to a phrase that people from the outside might miss. That's a little bit like calling Jesus son of David in the first century. There's an agenda to it. There's a tension to it. There's an era there. There's a cultural weight to it. There's a freight train behind it. That that phrase, when it gets used by Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus has a thousand years of history that are encapsulated in that one title, Son of David. So what does it mean? Well, generationally, it means that Jesus was descended from the lineage, the family tree of King David in the Old Testament. David, you know, who killed Goliath. David, who was Israel's greatest king. That David... This means that Jesus came from the family line of that David. And actually Matthew in Matthew chapter one and in Luke, in Luke's early accounts, Luke chapter two, we're given genealogies of Jesus. And both those genealogies wanna make sure that the reader knows, hey, this guy Jesus who was born in the manger, shepherds, you know, watching their flocks outside Bethlehem, that guy came from the line of David. Because it held a lot more weight than just that Jesus shared a bloodline and a family tree with David. And here's where it gets its importance. Here's where the thousand years of buildup to this moment come from. When David was king, way back in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, David has all these grand ideas of what he's gonna do for the Lord and he's settled the nation and there's peace in the nation and he's fought off all the enemies and he's got this massive palace on the top of the hill in Jerusalem and he says, Lord, I've got ideas. I want to build you a palace. So I'm gonna build you a temple and the Lord has to come to him and say, well, I'm not really in the business of my people having to do stuff for me and make promises to me. I'm actually the kind of God that does stuff for my people and I make promises to them. So David, you're not actually gonna build my temple. I, your, your son is gonna build my temple, but I've actually got something I wanna promise to you. And in 2 Samuel chapter seven, the Lord makes a covenant with David, a, a blood contract that lasts through the, the recipient and lasts through their generations and through their family line. And here's what God promises to David. He says, David, one day, one day, 
I'm gonna bring a descendant from your line long after you're dead. I'm gonna bring a descendant from your bloodline and that son of yours is going to be king. But David, he's not just gonna be a king like you've been king. David, when that son of yours, this one of yours, this one descendant of yours becomes king, his king, his kingship and his kingdom are gonna be so permanent that not even death will stop him from staying king. And he's gonna rule a kingdom and that kingdom will never cease and that kingdom will heal the world, David. And that king is gonna come from your line. And so David, your son, one day when your son, when you have an offspring, when he gets on the throne and his kingdom is initiated, death won't stop that king from healing everything. That's the promise that God makes to David and his lineage. And so then for a thousand years, everybody's waiting on David's son, David's greater son to get born. David was awesome. How could someone be a better king than David? He settled, the, he settled the nation. He delivered us from our enemies. Yeah, he messed up a lot, but man, he wrote us like half the book of Psalms and he fought off lions and giants and who is gonna be this one who's greater than David? And so they're adding to all of their hopes. They're adding to all of their desires, they're adding to all of their longings for David's greater son to come. And after thousands of years, a lot of the prophets are filled with languages of what the day will be like when David's son starts reigning. The Old Testament word to encapsulate David's son and many other promises is Messiah. The Messiah would be David's son that would rule and never stop ruling and have a kingdom that would never end and would heal the world. And so, so many layers get added to the messianic promises, the messianic hopes of what the kingdom would be like when David's son, David's son starts reigning. And one of the sweeping images that's given, it's given in dozens of places, but one of the sweeping images that is meant to kind of let your imagination run wild with what the kingdom will be like when David's son finally rules and rules forever is found in Isaiah chapter 11. And I want you to listen to this imagery. I want you to listen to this bliss. I want you to listen to the joy, listen to the shalom of this promise that when David's son starts reigning, when his greater son starts reigning and his kingdom is here and his kingdom comes in fullness, this is what it's gonna be like. And here you go, here's what he says. And it sounds elementary and it's meant to make you childlike because listen to what he says about the kingdom when David's son brings his kingdom in full. This is what he says it'll be like. He says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling all together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw with an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. And you go, that's weird. And you go, yeah, but can you imagine that as like a reality? Like what would the world have to be like for a wolf and a lamb to like play together? What would have to be happening in the fabric of the universe for a child to play by a cobra's den and have fun with snakes? Like what would have to be going on in the cosmos? What would have to be going on like in the ether if that was a reality? When David's son reigns, he's gonna remake the world. Sounds almost too good not to be true. 
It's, it's tough to imagine, but here's what the imagery around the messianic day of David's son reigning means. It means that things won't just not be sad anymore. It means things will be glorious. And, and this animal imagery of what it would be like, one of the, one of the descriptors, one of the images given is this, this animal kingdom where like everything is working in harmony this vision of the king and his kingdom is so much bigger than just personal salvation. That's in there, but, that, but the king, David's son, came to do way more than just personally save people to poof their souls up to clouds one day. David's son is gonna come and he's going to restore nature itself. He's like got cosmic level redemption in mind. He's got like the ether of the world working right, shalom reigning and war ceasing and cancer being gone and divorce never happening and strife never happening. He wants to renew all of it. So much bigger than our small view of what Jesus came to do. When the kingdom of David's son gets here, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and a nursing child shall play by a cobra's hole. So you can imagine from the time of David being promised this and then all the thousands of years of these additional prophecies getting added to what that king and his kingdom will be like, you can imagine the people of Israel dying for that king to come. And then they're under Babylonian captivity and then there's silence from God and then they're under Roman captivity. Like when is David's son going to come So when blind Bartimaeus yells from the side of the road, Jesus, son of David, here's what he's letting you know that he knows. My view, Bartimaeus is saying, my view of that man and his kingdom is enormous. It's got a thousand years of prophecy. It's got global-sized hopes in it. It's got not just the restoration of Jerusalem and Israel in it. It's got the world's renewal in mind. He knows that the son of David came to be a king and never leave his throne. He knows that the son of David came to be king and that kingdom intends to remake the world. He knows that the king of that kingdom is to literally take the wreckage of sin and death and to re-enchant the fiber of the universe. Like he wants to add the magic back. He wants to remake oxygen. Like he, want, he, he doesn't want trees to ever die. He doesn't want animals to ever have strife again. He doesn't want your heart to ever be shattered again. And that's the kind of level, that's the kind of scope, that's the kind of scale that when Bartimaeus says, that's the king, that's the son of David, that's what he knows his hopes are in. I was trying to think of like an image or like what is, it, what is a view of this as if Isaiah 11 wasn't enough for you. But I, then I thought of, of like Disney usually gets this right. Like really, like when when all is lost and then, it's, and then it's a wreckage and then when all gets remade, those remade, those renewal, those restored scenes get pretty, they got all those images from the Old Testament. I'm telling you, they, they, they're stealing. They're, they're, they're like committing copyright infringement. Like, hey, you didn't come up with that because this, it was original. It's OG right here. And so the scene that came to mind, Frozen 2, yes, Anybody? No one has seen Frozen 2. Thank you, parents in the room. Liars, everybody else. So 
Frozen 2 at the end when the fog is lifted in Arendelle, like the, whole, the streets are being remade and the animals are dancing together. No, you're like, who is this man? No, <laughs> like that kind of image of like the whole world being remade because the curse has been lifted. Animals, cities, nature, relationships, all of it with its magic restored. And all of those hopes are encapsulated in this one little title for Bartimaeus to use, Son of David. He's bringing that kingdom. And what's the first thing that Bartimaeus asks for, cries out for, from that king, from that son of David? Have mercy on me. Which is very fitting if you can start to kind of let your mind imagine the the scope and the scale of this kingdom that the son of David would bring and you start to understand what mercy is, and you, and you bring those two ideas together, you go, yeah, I think the, th- the first thing you should ask for from that king is mercy. Because what is mercy? Well, at its core, mercy has to do with pardon. Mercy has to do with justice. In fact, if you read C.S. Lewis, God in the Dock, he says you actually can't have mercy if you don't have justice because justice has to do with what one justly deserves when they are indebted to someone when they are in someone's debt when they have betrayed when they have committed treason when they have um, deceived when they have backstabbed when they have gone against the grain and now what they deserve what does justice say that they deserve for what they've done And so because of justice, justice is the only soil, C.S. Lewis says, that the trees of mercy can grow in. Because you have to deal with justice and what one deserves. And please don't hear this hypothetically or abstractly. That when you have to consider the justice that you deserve, the punishment you deserve, the pulverizing you deserve, the payment that you and I owe, payment for the thoughts, payment for the actions, payment for the words, Payment for the fantasies, payment for the ideas, payment for the secrets that you keep. Like like the things that you've actually done, the rage that you have actually shown to your family, the lusts that you've actually acted on, the horrors that you've actually committed not hypothetically, not theoretically, but actually committed. And you now know that the one you stand before is a cosmic-sized king. What do you think justice says to you? When you commit treason against a king, what's the penalty? What does justice say is due to those that commit treason against the king? And then you take an earthly, like limited idea of an earthly king, and you know what that payment is. What do you think the cost is for treason against a cosmic king? And mercy looks at all of that and pardons you, absolves you from what you owe. But mercy is not injustice. Mercy grows in beauty when it is only rooted in justice. And so when you start to consider the just punishment, the just pulverizing, the just abandonment, the just payment that you and I owe, the more that the mercy of Jesus maybe becomes beautiful to us. 
In reality, you can only, you can only ask for mercy from someone who's positioned above you. You don't ask for mercy from peers. When you sin against someone, even if they're your peer, you now become in their debt and you now are asking for mercy from them. Only someone who stands over you can show you mercy. And so if you marry that understanding of mercy, mercy has to do with pardon and mercy is rooted in justice and the justice that I deserve, but I've been shown mercy instead of justice. When you marry that understanding and then you understand the son of David who came to restore the cosmos, the son of David's scope that is not merely personal salvation, but cosmic restoration, the son of David who came to rule and to rule forever, the son of David whose scepter he never sits down, the son of David who will never leave his throne, How grand do you think his justice is? What do you think you owe him? What do you think you are indebted to him? And then how glorious do you think his mercy might be? Only if you understand his justice would you understand his mercy. And if Bartimaeus' view of Jesus is as grand as this title would suggest that it is, don't you think it fitting that the first thing he asks from that king is mercy? Do you think it possible that his understanding of the kingdom was so glorious and so enormous that he knew, not only do I believe that this is the long-awaited son of David, not only do I believe that he came to restore and heal the world, not only do I believe that he came to re-enchant the universe, but I believe that his mercy will restore everything. One of the specific promises that's associated time and time and time again with the coming messianic age in the Old Testament, like, hey, you'll know that the Messiah is here when these things start to happen. You'll know that the Messiah is here when these things start to happen. John the Baptist is in jail, in prison, and he's been arrested, and he sends his, he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, like, dude, Jesus, wasn't planning on ending up in jail for this. I need to know, are you the Christ? Are you the son of David? Are you the messianic king? Or should we look for someone else? Because John's in jail and he's not sure. One of the passages that Jesus sends back to John the Baptist in jail is a passage from Isaiah. There's like 10 of them in Isaiah that says, yeah, the, the king and the kingdom is here and here's the proof of it. The lame will walk and, and, the, and the deaf will hear and the blind will see. The blind will see, the blind will see, the blind will see, the blind will see, the blind will see. It's like, okay, we get it. One of the markers of the kingdom coming is that the blind will get their sight again. And so here's what Bartimaeus is saying when he's crying out to Jesus, saying, look, I know I don't deserve to see, but son of David, in your mercy, would you let me see? I know I need your pardon. I know I'm blind in more ways than one. I know I need mercy, but I also believe, I'm daring to believe that when your kingdom comes, it will be so full of mercy that the world will begin to be remade and one of the markers of that will be that the blind like me will see again. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Which makes Jesus' follow-up question, his, his actually initial question to Bartimaeus' initial cry, really interesting. But again, Mark is trying to slow us down here. It's a really interesting question. Bartimaeus calls out for Jesus, begs him to show him mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus calls for him, and when he gets brought to Jesus, Jesus says to him in verse 51, you can put this up there, verse 51, he says this, what do you want me to do for you? 
It's like, come on, Jesus, dude. <laughs> You're talking to a blind dude. Like, what do you think he wants you to do for him? But maybe, just go with me here, Jesus knew what he was doing. Maybe Jesus should get a little bit more credit than that. Maybe he's not answering, or maybe he's not asking a rhetorical question. Kurt Thompson, in his devastatingly good book, The Soul of Desire, says that when Jesus asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? He asks it multiple times in scripture. Kurt Thompson says, it's the scariest question in the Bible. It's scary because here's what, if we, if we could get quiet for 10 minutes with Jesus and believe that he would ask us this question, here's what we would have to deal with. After our initial anger of like, what are you talking about? What do I want you to do for me? I got a huge list, Jesus. Yeah, I hate that cancer diagnosis and I need, new, I need a new job and I wish I was married and I wish that my life didn't look this way. I got a bunch of things that I want you to do for me, Jeannie. Like, why can't you just do what I want you to do for me? Why can't you fix this relationship? Why can't you fix this child? Why can't you fix this problem? Why can't you fix my addiction? Why won't you just do what I want you to do? After that simmers. And then you hear Jesus ask you, but what do you want me to do for you? We would have to, we would have to deal with the fact that Jesus maybe isn't just coming after my actions. Maybe he's coming after the very center of me. That for Jesus to ask that question, what do you want? Means that Jesus is interested in the place in you where your wants live, your desires. Jesus is interested in that place. Jesus, you're asking about like the deepest part of me and Jesus is going, I know, what do you want? And for us to have to try to answer that question, we would begin to realize it's unnerving. It's paralyzing. Do you know what you want? I know what you think you want. Do you know what you want? You think you want more sex. You think you want more money. You think you want more control. You think you want more prominence. And Jesus would look at you and say, you haven't even scratched the surface yet. You don't have a clue what you want. I know those are the things that first come to mind when someone asks you what you want. Those aren't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the place beneath that. What do you want? What if, in the words of Kurt Thompson, Jesus knew that what you most achingly longed for is that which is beautiful, good, true, and joyful? You want what's beautiful. You want what's good, you want what's true, and you want what's joyful. Which is scary to think about because then the next question might be, what are those things? Would you dare to believe that beauty could heal you? Do you know that what you actually want is what's beautiful, good, true, and joyful? And do you even know how to define those things for you? Right before this story in Mark chapter 10, literally like the, the section right before it, Jesus has to interrupt two of his fighting disciples and in another account of that same story, the mom's there and it gets weird, but James and John are fighting. And Jesus comes up to them and asks them the same exact question. Same exact question, same exact words. They're fighting and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? 
And they go, oh, well, good. Jesus, glad you asked because we've got some things that we, we've been talking and yeah, kingdom come and when you rule forever and you, you finally let heaven invade earth and you're finally here and you're on your throne. You know that glorious throne that you're talking about sitting on? I wanna sit on your right and he wants to sit on your left. So can you just do that? Basically, Jesus, we want you to give us power and we want you to give us prominence. When you ask, you ask Jesus, what do I want? I want power and I want prominence. I wanna bump up against some of your glory. I'm glad that you're gonna be king forever, but what's my in on it? How am I gonna get some of that for me? And then like two sentences later, we're in the blind Bartimaeus story. And Jesus asked the blind beggar the same exact question. This is meant to stop us. This is part of what Mark is doing. Like, hey, I'm slowing you down here. He just asked two disciples who were on the inner circle. They're supposed to get it. And he asked them the question, and I want you to read their answer. And then I want you to see blind Bartimaeus, and I want you to see his answer. Because their answers could not be more drastically different. Bartimaeus, the first thing he asks the son of David for, what he wants from Jesus is not power or prominence, it's mercy. Please note the order of this. Bartimaeus asks, begs, pleads for mercy before he asks for new eyes. He wants mercy more than he wants anything. Because Bartimaeus knows what he most deeply wants, what he most deeply desires is mercy. Jesus, if your mercy means I can see again, that's great. What I actually want from you, what I know I need from you more than I even need to see is I need your mercy. And the two stories are back to back for a reason. Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying to the, the original listeners, the crowd walking by, the crowd watching this happen, and he's saying to us, you don't know what you want. You don't have a clue what you want. You don't know what your desires are about. You don't know how deep your wants go. You think you want power and prominence, James and John. You have no idea what you want. Guess who does know what they want, though? This blind beggar right here. This blind beggar who y'all are trying to shut up. This blind beggar who falls in nobody's cool list, falls uh, down at the bottom of the social construct, who no one is thinking would be held up as a model citizen and going, hey, in the kingdom, he's actually at the top. No one is thinking that. And we're on our way to Jerusalem and the disciples have agendas for that. That throne's coming, baby, and we're gonna get the power and you're gonna be on the right and you're gonna be on the left and that's what we want. Let's get to Jerusalem. Shut up, blind Bart. We don't have time for you. We gotta get to Jerusalem. Jesus stops the whole thing and so does Mark. Jesus is using Bartimaeus to show us something glorious about his kingdom. You have to become blind to know what you want. And it's the fact that you think you can see that's making you so confused. You think you can see it all, you think you know it all, you think you understand your desires and you don't, you don't have a clue. And until you're willing to admit how spiritually bankrupt and blind you are, you won't know what you want. And you'll answer like James and John, what do I want? Here's the list. 
And Jesus is saying, if you actually wanna understand your desires, if you actually wanna know how deep the want hole goes in you, if you actually wanna know what the place in you that I came to do something about, you have to listen to this blind man. You should get that. Jesus, I don't even know who it was, sorry, mercy. Jesus, Jesus is using Bartimaeus as the model citizen of his kingdom to say this, Bartimaeus wanted mercy before he wanted anything else. And that's what you should want too. This is why Mark is drawing our attention to this story. It's why he's slowing us down because in the kingdom of God, only the blind know what they really want and what they really need is mercy. And also in the kingdom of God, only the blind, only the blind, not only do they know what they want, know what they need, they get to see. This guy gets it more than you. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, James and John, you don't get it. Hey, disciples, you don't get it. This guy does. This is why you're so insecure, because you've forgotten how blind you actually are. This is why you can't get out from underneath the burden of your anxiety, because you've forgotten how blind you are. This is where your addictions come from. This is where your coping mechanisms come from. This is why your relationships are fractured. This is where everything lives, is that you've forgotten how blind you are. And you're pretending like you're not so blind. And that's where the problems start. And Jesus is saying, if you don't understand how blind you are, not only will you not understand your wants, you won't ever see anything. You won't understand anything until you understand you don't understand anything. You won't see anything until you know you can't see anything. Inside the kingdom of God, it's only the blind that ever start to see. And when you see his mercy, in the words of Kurt Thompson, what you most achingly long for, the beautiful, the good, the true, the joyful, you will find in his mercy is all that you ever wanted. Because it's beautiful and it's good, and it's true, and it's joyful. Because the mercy of King Jesus is so grand, and the healing he came to bring through his mercy will bring satisfaction to all that you want. He intends to re-enchant the world through his mercy, and that's what you want. His mercy has, his mercy does, and his mercy will restore everything and you won't see it unless you know you're blind. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so blind we don't think we're blind. And the moment we get a glimpse of sight, we turn it into self-righteousness and we use it to judge other people. We're so blind we can't even handle the sight that you give us. So Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Open our eyes and just like Bartimaeus, would you make the first thing we see you? We're crying out for your mercy and in your mercy would you give us sight? Would you pardon our offenses? not putting away your justice, but growing the tree of mercy and the soil of it that we might stand in awe of how blind we are and how much mercy this son of David came to show us. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.